everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sheep Things Podcast. We have a special, well, I, I hope it'll be special, edition of the podcast for you today. Uh, we're going to have our first question and answer podcast and start to answer those questions that you all have been sending in. Appreciate you taking the time to send those to us. Um, if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, uh, we typically interview people here on the podcast, and hopefully that generates some questions in your mind. Uh, you can be thinking about your operation, and we're happy to answer questions if we can, if you have them. Um, so send them on in to us, podcast at sheepthings.com. Again, that email is podcast at sheepthings.com, and then we're just kind of collecting those, and every once in a while, we will put those questions together and answer them here on the podcast, and that's what we're doing today. Another kind of special fun thing is this is our first time doing a video podcast, um, and we so hope. we're going to... Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we should in the hopes that it'll work out. Um, so if, if that's something you're interested in, head over to YouTube, uh, search for Sheep Things. Um, and Robert probably would know the, the exact uh, idea of our, our podcast on YouTube. Oh, man, I think it is sheep underscore things. Okay, awesome. So, yes, yeah, so if you head over there, you can check out our channel, subscribe and uh, be prepared for some videos um, in the future. Hopefully we can have some, some cool video content to put on there. So um, with that, I guess we can jump right into questions. Um, so how about we start with a question from Jensen in Nebraska. Jensen, again, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending us your questions. Um, and, and he sent us a few questions. And one of his questions is about tagging systems. And he asks what kind of tagging system is the best. So I don't know, Robert, I guess we could talk about, we could talk about uh, EID tags. We could talk about, um, you know, different tagging systems within a flock without EID tags. Uh, what do you do for tags and how has that changed over the years? All right. So when I started out with four or five sheep, I just used my scrapey tag because yeah. they're free, you know, yeah. uh, and, and they were the white um, size three or five premier tag. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, I got one in my pocket. Wow. Well, I use it as a keychain. It's a oh, safe. Okay. I'm like, wow, you just we have We made keychains keychain. for the expo a couple years ago. Uh-huh. And so that's the, uh, where's my camera? That's the size it is. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, and currently I'm using an EID tag from Shearwell. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. Yeah. And, oh, my camera. Can't, I can't get used to this backward thing. So uh, both of them uh, had a, had my scrapey ID number on them. So they're both uh, trade legal. I can take to the sale barn across state lines or whatever. 
Um, so yeah, I started out with those big tags. Uh, I like them because I can't see very well. I'm getting old. And uh, when I went to the EID tags, you can't see that son of a gun there either. So uh, I, I did that. Now I've went back to doing both. I do the electronic okay. for my shear well, just for data collection. It makes things a whole lot faster. And yeah. then I have uh, a hand, a handwrite. I don't do printed tags no more. Uh, okay. I print my farm code on it, WFF. But now I use the paint marker, uh, the, the tag marker, and I put the sheet number on there because it's really black. Yeah. I've noticed with Premier tags, they're a, they're gray, they're a dark gray, and they're really hard to see. Uh, they with the colors. Some colors don't work for me either. So I use the paint marker because it's really black, really sticks out, and it it seems to last three or four or five years for me. So uh, yeah, that's what I do. Are you yeah. using printed tags? Yeah, I am using printed tags and I'll probably switch next year um to larger printed tags. Um last couple of years I bought the uh just the small premier tags. They they're like I forget which size, but they're the the Q Flex, the just the short skinny ones. Yeah. Yeah, they're and, hard uh, to read. You do not read those things. You have to practically catch the animal and yes. tackle it and and hold it to the ground and then grab your magnifying glass and then you can read it, maybe. Um and and so I mean, you know, good to have the ID in there, but I think, you know, I'll go back to a larger tag. Um, the reason I went with the smaller tags is so I could put them in the lamb ears and not feel bad about them carrying this big giant tag around. And, uh, I don't know. I think you might be better off just buying little tags and not getting scrapey ones. Well, that's what out. I do. That's why I like the Shearwell tag. I put them yep. in at birth. Mm -hmm. That's the only tag they get. And then at weaning, I put the next size up. Yeah. If I'm yep. keeping, if I'm not keeping them, if they're going to to slaughter, then they don't get, they only get the the little EID tag. Yeah, yeah, I think the EID tags are definitely. Um, you they're know, they really cheap. Yeah, and they're worth the investment for the, you know, the readers are expensive, but, I mean, you look at some of those. Um, I mean, if you're running, you know, thousands of sheep, those auto drafters, I mean, you where you can set it up to where it. I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, I think Gallagher makes them. Um, oh yeah. If, um, there's three or four of us that if we live closer together, we would go in together and buy one and yeah. just share it on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause that would save so much time. And so I think there's a lot of potential with the ID tags and especially if you have a, you know, the ability to grab weights. Um, I think another thing that some people do is rotate colors every year, um, to where you can look at the color. I don't know. I, I, I think you're limited in how many colors though will actually show up on the tag. And so as cool of an idea as that sounds, I don't know that practically it works. Well, I tried it for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. Like I said, when I had four, the next year I went like to yellow tags and then orange tags and then blue uh -huh. tags. And then after a while I had so many colors floating around. I didn't, I didn't know yeah. which, which I couldn't keep up. So yep. uh, I went away with that pretty quick. And another thing people do and I still do is, is I put my electronic tag or my, or not, I'm sorry, my visual tag in the right ear for a U. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for me to remember a female is always right. So all my rams have them in the left ear and yeah. the majority of my sheep, of course, are U, so they're all in the right ear. And it's easy for me to, you know, find those, you know, glancing through a, a bunch. So, 
Yeah. <clears throat> that's yeah, that's for, fairly easy. Yeah, for me, I I have them in the opposite because uh, that's how we started. The user in the left ear and the Rams are in the right ear. And, and I just... So you're not of, married, so you don't know that the female's right yet. <laughs> well, it, uh, and I, that's just what we started with. And then my, my brain goes, okay, R for Ram, R for right. E and left, right. E and U. And that's how my, my brain works. So um, I guess I'm too much into spelling or something. Yeah, so another thing uh, for breed, you know, I, I assume uh, he's a Katahdin breeder, but, uh, you know, some breeds have to have certain requirements on your tag. So make yeah. sure follow up with the association to make sure your tag complies um, with your breed registry if you're doing register sheep. So, so yeah. yeah, tagging's a necessary evil. You know, we have to do it. Yep. Yeah. And no, I think it's, a, it's a definitely important. Uh, one, one thing that I've had a few breeders tell me is always make sure you have two tags. Um, yes. Because if they lose one and <laughs> you pull in these animals and they only have, and you only have you know, no tag, you just have a hole. Well, I will add to that. I would recommend that everybody has two taggers as well, because I ran into the Shearwell taggers are not something you can go to tractor supply and buy. And yeah. uh, I had this panic hit me one day out in the field. Uh, I keep everything in this big box, this big cooler, and, mm -hmm. and my tagger was gone. Yeah. And I forgot I used it as a demo to somebody and I had it in my car. Luckily, yeah. my car was there, but so I ended up buying another tagger. So I always have a backup, you know, yeah. that would have been a disaster. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if you have a small flock, like for me right now, my flock's still fairly small. So if you just have a small flock and like I'm, I'm doing management intensive grazing and, and they're in electric netting, they don't really have anything to rip their, their ear tags out on. And I see them every day. So I would kind of catch that. So right. um, I haven't worried about two tags yet. Um, but as I get more sheep, I probably will start doing multiple tags and, and probably add EID tags um, and, and do that instead of just a, another random tag. So um, well, on that thought, yeah, the, the new scrapey tags in Tennessee anyway, they're Shearwell tags that are not electronic. So oh, you okay. do that as one ID and then yeah. a farm tag is your other to give you your two tags. Yeah. Yep. And as long as you cross reference your. As long as you've got a way of keeping them yeah. you know, <laughs> in your management software. Yep. Definitely. So, next question um, is wondering kind of about feed systems. Well, I guess it's a few questions. So, um, wondering about feeding grain, um, feeding hay when they're not on grass or pasture and cover crops um, for winter grazing. So um, I'll just kind of jump into my system. So I am a, a grass only system and that's not something that works for everybody. Um, and it, it's really market driven. So it's not, it's not pounds driven. Um, if you're pounds driven and, and selling for commodity market, probably don't do grass fed. Um, <laughs> creep, creep feed your lambs at least. Um, I'm not saying you have to go to a full grain ration, but, but don't do strictly grass because if you're producing for the commodity market, you will not get as much money as, as you'd like to. Um, so that said, my market does prefer um, grass fed and I'm direct marketing meat. So, um, you know, I, I do raise my animals without any grain. I think I gave one you, she probably got a quarter cup of oats once. She didn't have great milk production. It was early on. And, and uh, that's, that's the only grain I've ever fed 
to any animal ever. Um, well, any sheep ever. I've obviously fed lots of grain to chickens, um, but <laughs> to my sheep. I'd say oats is the gateway drug now, so be careful. <laughs> yeah, so I'll uh, probably I'm just gonna stick with the stick with the grass, and and I use alfalfa um, if I need to increase body condition or whatever. Um, so I guess my my feed management system, I I've kind of last few years, my philosophy has been I want to have as few inputs as possible, so I can really see the difference in genetics, see what the animals can do, and you learn fast which animals work and which Real ones fast. don't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know it you you probably ought to be selling breeding stock if you're doing that or at least a, a high premium direct market because you will have lambs that that take forever to finish um and that's just you know the nature of but you'll have some lambs that will will grow really well um and so um you know i don't feed grain um i do know people that do uh, you know our our neighbor um i sold them their sheep a few years ago let them use uh rams that i bought and and they had a ewe lamb out of a uh, a ewe that didn't have that great of growth genetics. Um, her EBVs for growth weren't that high. Um, I'll actually probably look it up as we're talking here. But um, you know, it wasn't that that great of growth at all. Um, and she weighed 130 pounds at like four and a half months. Um, so grain definitely can get you some some growth. I don't know, Robert. How much how much grain do you typically, or, or you're not really doing grain as much as a uh, soy hole pellet so yeah so my my deal is i want to i want them on pasture as much as possible just from just because i got it um mm -hmm. this year i started doing some summer annuals uh for my dry use and and i think that's worked really great they can't keep up with it i did a um a sudan grass mix um the sudan grass is about the only thing that come up we didn't really get any rain for a couple of weeks after I planted it. So by the time we got rain, the Sudan had already pretty much smothered everything else out. So <laughs> uh, next year I'll probably do straight Sudan and, and plant it thicker and not, not worry about it. Um, I have done winter annuals. I, I did a mix. Uh, oh man, I had uh, Harry Vetch. I had uh, Crimson Clover. I've had, um what else did i have in there oats um ryegrass I, I don't remember it's probably 10 or 15 different things in my mix and yeah. it did really well it, it t the the whole cover crop deal in in middle tennessee anyway and i i don't depends on your location but mm -hmm. timing of plant of planting is key because yeah. if you plant too early or too late and miss any moisture it, it can basically you can have no no crop whatsoever and uh, so that that's a tough gamble for us we could have a a wet fall or a drought and uh so that, that's a gamble that's a for me and the number of acres i usually do it's a five or six seven hundred dollar gamble you know yeah uh, either way so then uh, that's where buying water is nice yeah, so you're buying water. There you go. I knew there was a benefit. Uh, yeah. So then uh, gets to the point he asked about hay. Uh, I hate feeding hay. Uh, mm -hmm. I hate the hay world. Uh, the people making money off hay are the co-op, the fertilizer guys, and the equipment guys selling the equipment. Um, you know, it's it's tough to have quality hay in, in the south where we're at with 
you get it cut, you know, two days later it rains, you know, it's so hard. Uh, so we've not, I've not fed hay in three years. I've been doing a soy hull pellet uh, mm -hmm. mix with some corn and, um, and it, it's worked good for me. I, I keep that out for my use, uh, depending on when my winter forage kind of peters out. Usually it's about the middle to end of January. And then I do that through lambing. Um, and, and that's worked good for me, but, uh, you know, they can only eat so much, you know, I yeah. think the rules 3% of their body weight for, for maintenance. So, um, you know, kind of see what size you have and, and, and have feed tests done, have hay analysis done. If you're feeding hay, that's what I like about my soy oil mix. I know what, I know what it is. You know, it doesn't fluctuate from bale to bale, you know, or year to year, cutting to cutting. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I would, uh, and the cover crop, same way, see what works in your area. You know, the stuff yeah. that works in my area won't work in Idaho probably. So, and the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's a couple different ways of looking at hay. Um, you know, I look at hay half as, as, uh, as feed. Well, not maybe half, but a, a, a certain portion of it I look at as feed and a, another portion I look at as um, organic matter. Yeah, organic matter and nitrogen, um, because you look at the amount of nitrogen per ton of hay. I mean, typically it's, you know, I've seen like 50 pounds of nitrogen in a ton of hay. I mean, that can give quite a bit of, of fertilizer benefit. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, it's definitely more than the cost of fertilizer. But um, when you feed that out um it's definitely a way to improve a, a pasture but like you said if, if you're not trying to to use it for that purpose it does become a little bit of a hassle to feed hay um a great book that i've read is by uh, jim garish um it's called kick the hay habit um he talks in there a lot about how to use winter grazing to reduce hay um and, and one of the interesting concepts he talks about in there is is that one of the most valuable things is an acre of stockpiled feed in the wintertime um, because that, that will give you so much more value than. Well, I can tell you this is uh, today is what, July 17th. Um, I have not touched any of my permanent pastures in two months. Yeah. Uh, my pastures look better now than they've ever looked. And I don't think I'll have to touch them for probably two or three more months. So yeah. my stockpiled forage going into winter this year, I, I mean, I, I may not need anything uh, yeah. this winter. So uh, I don't think people put enough value in summer forage. I think the norm and what your granddaddy did or what your daddy did, you know, is you just graze them all summer because the grass keeps growing, but then you're stuck with nothing in the winter. I think that's the yeah. value. Yeah. Um, but another question, you talked about your organic matter. I wish I had a way of sharing pictures. I ain't, I ain't figured this out fast enough. But when you said that, it made me think. So I, I have a horse arena that mm -hmm. we have disked and, and plowed for years yeah. to kill the grass, okay? And uh -huh. there's no topsoil in it. And we have spent, or I've spent the last probably four or five years trying to get stuff to grow now. And... Uh, Last year, year before last one, I fed a mare and a colt in there 
and I and I I bought two round bales of hay, and because I didn't have any hay, so I bought two round bales <laughs> of hay and put in the arena for that yep. mare and and colt. And um, this year, when I drilled my uh, Sudan grass this summer, the place where those hay bales were at grew three to four times faster than the rest of the whole arena. Uh, yep. I took a picture of it like at two or three weeks, and it was like two and a half, three foot tall, where everything else was 12 inches. I mean, yep. it was phenomenal. But yeah, I've seen that. At, at the same time, they did not touch any of it. They did not eat any of it. So I'm <laughs> curious to know, how do I taste, how do I test, you know, maybe the bricks content, or is there a way to test the flavor profile? Because uh, they didn't touch it, you know. So yeah. I, I'm fixing to clip it all and let it do its second regrowth. Uh -huh. I'm curious to see if, you know, how they handle it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that too on, on permanent pasture because I've, you know, overwintered on permanent pasture and then fed hay on top of the snow or just straight on the pasture. And and I will see dramatic differences the next spring. I mean, I can I can walk out there and tell you where my fence line was sometimes yes. on some of my pastures because I know exactly where the, um, you know, where the hay went. Um, but you do see sometimes, depending on the the close, you know, how the proximity and time to when you last had animals on there, I think there's maybe a little bit of manure residual or something that if you have a, a larger you know, an area where they're spending more time, I think there's some reason why they don't tend to like it. And I don't know if it, if it has to do with that um, because I have seen them trample a little bit more. Um, where I really see the benefit is later in the summer or the following year after there's been a little bit more time, um, you know, definitely see a, a big difference there. So, yeah, I think, you know, hay is one of those things where it, it works for summer operations and some operations it is, it's not a good investment at all and you're wasting your time. So if you have access to cover crop ground, I think you can, you know, for winter cover crops um, or, or like what you're doing, you know, grazing summer cover crops and stockpiling your permanent cool season grasses for, for winter grazing. Um, I think either of those work pretty well. Going back to the cover crop question out here, a lot of people will use brassicas and have a lot of success with those. Did you, did you put any brassicas in your mix or? I, I did uh, do some radishes. Okay. Uh, but but the Sudan grass, I mean, they just basically, yeah. I mean, it, it covered, it grows so fast and covered everything up. Uh, you know, uh, very little of it uh, got over, you know, maybe an inch or two tall before it was just basically covered up, you know. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's probably, the that, thing. I've done that in the fall with my fall crop. Uh -huh. uh, one year I planted a bunch of, of turnips and, um, and they, they, or radishes, I'm sorry, radishes. And they got, uh, my tops got about, I don't know, two, three inches tall. Yeah. We had a little freeze come through and they quit growing. So I mm. turned my sheep in just to get whatever I could off of it. And, um, and I dug some of them up and some of them were already three or four inches tall, you know, yeah. and, uh, and the sheep would, would eat them, you know, and once they got a taste or two of them, well, they would kind of paw around on them and, and dig them up as well. So. Uh, that worked out pretty good. Uh, yeah. I would do them for sure. I should have done them earlier when I did it in the fall and caught some, some moisture and, you know, not a chance of, of, you know, a freeze. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
Well, one of our next questions here is about parasites, and this is something I'm I'm kind of passionate about. Um, you know, have a little bit more parasite issues out here. Um, took a FAMACHA course this spring and um, was actually uh, accepted to to begin helping to to start training FAMACHA uh, or doing FAMACHA training courses for people. So I'm excited about helping people with that because parasites is is definitely a a, a big issue on irrigated pasture or can be. Um, and the question here is how often should, you know, worm the sheep? Um, is it just when you see bottle jaws or when you see other things? Um, I, I think, you know, the, the best recommendation, and, and first of all, I should start with, you know, go visit the American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control website, um, wormx.com, I believe it is. Um, and uh, we can probably put that link in our, on our, you know, in the podcast. Um, so go ahead and go, go to our website and check that out. Uh, maybe we'll make a blog post or something. I think it's wormx.info. Yeah. Okay. That, that yeah. makes sense. Wormx.info. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can check out our blog or, um, or go to the podcast and then, um, but anyways, there's a lot of really helpful information there. Um, I think, you know, the best recommendation is only worm your sheep when they need it. Um, so, you know, go take a FAMACHA course. There's online courses. So if you can't make it to an in-person training, you know, if you're stuck at home in the middle of COVID-19, um, you've got, you might have some time on your hands. If you're like me, you just filled it up with outside farm projects. But if you have some time on your hands, um, you can go watch the, uh, the videos um, and, and you can become certified to train online. And when you do that, um, that FAMACHA scoring really helps you to identify the ones that need to be dewormed because you'll have some that they just, they just don't need it. Um, you know, they can go right through, even if they have a lot of parasites, their body can handle it. And so you don't want to be killing all or, you know, too many parasites all at once um, and leaving just a few that are very strongly resistant to dewormer. If you're just killing a few at a time, your chances of, you know, your population's chance of developing resistance as an entire population to the dewormer is, is drastically reduced. So, um, you know, deworming when they need it. Um, when you wait to the point where there's bottle jaw, um, oftentimes it's pretty close to too far. Um, I'd say about 50% of, well, maybe 75% of mine um, that have gotten bottle jaw, I've been able to treat and, you know, they'll recover. But um, yeah, that's to... the thing I hear most people. I got one today, probably three or four hours ago. Send me a picture. What do you think? Hey, look, worm a son of a gun. Don't let yeah. it die. You can yeah. you can work on it next spring or next month or next week, but uh, from a shepherd's standpoint, you know, don't you don't have to worm your whole flock to save this one's life. Yeah, uh, worm that son of a gun, save its life, and then try to figure out what caused it, what can I do to change, you yep. know, but if, if you, uh, if when he's got, dead, you can't figure it out. Yeah. Worm him. If you have quite a few, write down his tag number, sell him, and then, uh, and then, right. and then but a, a dead on. sheep is worth zero. So, uh, yeah. get to know your vet. Uh, you know, one of the things we see, of course, Caleb, he's a, he's a stalker on Facebook. He's not a participant, but, uh, a lot of stuff we see on Facebook, you know, somebody show a picture of a sheep and say, you know, what do you think's wrong with my sheep? And you'll get everybody under the sun telling you every disease known to man. 
when 90% of them are probably parasites or pneumonia. Yep. You know, so eliminate that first worm it, you know, yep. and uh, save the animal's life. Um, and then figure out if your management issue or if it's a genetic issue, if it's the only one or whatever, but, but you yeah. got to save it first. So, uh, so worm it, uh, a lot of suggestions I see are, Oh, get a fecal, take it. This thing will be dead time you get your fecal results back. Yeah. So, so just give it a dose of wormer, you know, and, and the, yeah. And the reality is, is the, the fecal egg count, you shouldn't deworm on fecal egg count. I mean, you should deworm on Fumacha because there are animals that have high fecal egg counts that can handle the, the parasites just fine. There are those with low fecal egg counts that, that can't handle the few parasites that they have. So, um, you know, deworm on Fumacha. If you have one that pops up with bottle jaw, then, you know, run your sheep through your shoot system. Um, if you don't have a shoot system, catch them um, and, and then build a shoot system. Um, that's the point where I'm at. I need to build one. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, uh, you're talking to yourself. Yep, I am. Uh, I'm just trying to save people from the uh, <laughs> the hassle that that I go through every 60 days when I'm, <laughs> I have lambs. But uh, no, I do set up my electric netting and a little bit of a shoot, but I need to build a better one. Um, but yeah, take them through a shoot system and then uh, you know, Fumacha score them and and see where you're at. If you have you know bunch of twos threes and ones well then don't worry about it if you have a bunch of fours and fives well then make sure you have plenty of dewormer on hand and get them dewormed so yeah and it can uh, change fairly quick in the springtime too uh, yeah spring going into summer uh they can change you know in a week's time so yep i had one year where i had uh, a group of lambs and and it was a management issue um where i couldn't move them to a field because uh you know almost all my pastures leased. And so, I, you know, I was moving them to a leased pasture and that the neighbor at that pasture had, had shot fireworks over the top of them. And so, um, in the past, so I was going to wait until after the 4th of July to move them. And so anyways, um, you know, waited a little bit and waited too long, kept them on a pasture, fed hay on the ground. They regrazed just the right time, picked up a whole bunch of parasites, moved them over to this field. It was, you know, low quality nutrition, perfect storm to get some problems. I, I had a lamb die and I was like, Oh man, I got problems. And I looked at the matches and it was like, wow, they're low. What's going on? So I took some fecal egg counts, zero, zero parasites. Because what happened was they got hit with a really hard load of parasites. And before those parasites were laying eggs, it was already knocking out the lambs. So you know, that just goes to show again, you know, use the FAMACHA, don't rely solely on the fecal egg counts. Um, and, and I saw, you know, a, a big, a big change there dramatically quickly. So um, keep an eye on them, you know, FAMACHA score them periodically. Whenever you work them, you know, just, just check a few FAMACHA um, scores and, and see where you're at. But uh, yeah, there's, de you know, know which dewormers work and uh, don't keep using the ones that don't work because they're not getting anywhere. <laughs> no, and, and I would say, uh, uh, follow the Texas A&M guys. They've done some research, uh, yeah. posted a lot of videos this past year on uh, uh, different wormers and then a, a copper bolus with great mm -hmm. success. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of options there. Uh, I know people that have had success with a bolus. So, um, you know, yeah. everybody's in a different world and, and has different options. So, yeah, always look around. Yep. Got to know what works for you. Yep.
So uh, Jensen's, uh, he's got a lot of questions. So I didn't even know we, I didn't even know we had people in Nebraska that that listened to us. So it's great. Uh, He wants to know, how do you get to your ewes to breed in a short amount of time? And if you're breeding 30 sheep at a time, how many rams should you use to breed them? However many you want to, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> well you know exactly it ass, depends on the age of your ram yeah you know, if you've got a young uh, spring ram in the fall of the year you know 30 would absolutely wear him out you know uh, whereas a three or four year old ram 30 is just a good two-day jog through the park you know yeah uh, so it all depends on the age of your ram uh if i had a two-year-old ram or more I, 30 you know, that's no big deal, you know, yep. but if I, if I had a first time Ram, you know, I'd probably put 10 or 12 in with him or something, you know, maybe 15, but, um, that'd be asking a lot for a, for a young Ram. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, part of it depends too on, um, you know, the time of year that you're breeding, yeah. if you're breeding in August, um, or if you're breeding in November or December, um, you know, in November, December out here, if I had a, a seven month old ram lamb, I wouldn't hesitate to put him in with 25 views and I'd, I'd feel fine about it. Um, if I were in, if I were in Tennessee or if I were in Florida, I probably wouldn't do that in August. Right. I, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but yeah, I think, um, going back to his other question about, uh, how to get used to breeding a short amount of time, nutrition. I mean, that's all about nutrition. Yeah. I had one you that had seven lambs in nine and a half months. Um, she had a set of quads. No, she had a set of triplets and turned around and had a set of quads. And I hope she's the one that got the oats. <laughs> <laughs> she's not. She raised those all. And uh, I've still got uh, I've still got three of those lambs, those ewes. And, uh, yeah, no, she, she raised them all well and did fine. But, you know, it, it, the, the key to that is making sure they have enough nutrition to um, – for uh, – to be able to do that because if you know if you don't have that nutrition you may get them to breed but you'll probably end up with a single and and for me i would rather wait a month and get an extra lamb than accelerate them. Yeah. yeah and that's part of the reason that i haven't moved to accelerated lambing system because doing grass-fed you know it would be hard on them to breed them right after weaning um uh, for me and so you know i've gone well i could i could do that and I may end up with another single, but if you delay, it takes a long time to recover their condition. Yeah, I mean it's like I kind of look at like a Holstein cow. A Mm -hmm. Holstein cow is bred to be a heavy milker, and and she puts all of her energy into milk uh, for her calf, uh, which would be us humans, I guess. But I look at the sheep (laughs) the same way. I I want my sheep to give all she's got to her lambs. Yeah. I don't want her to be gaining weight while she's milking. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't want her cause that's just fat. I mean, I want all of her energy to go to that lamb and I hope she drops a condition, um, after weaning, you know, or as, as I'm weaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that's good for their body. Good. I mean, that's nature's process. So, yeah. so they, they should drop a condition or two. And then, then you got to let that condition come back for her to breed. So, yeah, um, you can do it, but you got to you you got to your input costs will go up. 
and your management skills will go up, you know, yeah. kind of depends and, on your time and how much resources you want to put into it. Uh, yeah. And you don't even necessarily have to have them in, in full, you know, lambing condition. Nope. Um, you shouldn't. I mean, just an increase, just an increasing. Yep. If you increase them for a couple of weeks, you know, if, if they're at a, you know, pretty, you know, fairly low and you increase them for a couple of weeks, their condition might not improve a whole lot in a few weeks, but the nutrition level does. Um, yeah. And then you can just hold them at that for a few weeks to make sure that they settle. And then, you know, you can kind of drop off, keep them on management and just let them slowly pick up that weight as they're pregnant. And you'll avoid a lot of uh, large lambs in the spring. So yeah. <laughs> that's a, a good problem to avoid. And a good question. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think our, our next question here, um, let's jump down to uh, Taylor in Ohio. Um, asks us um, about how to keep rams uh, or how to, you know, how to keep replacement females um, and how to, you know, select rams if you're trying to keep a, a closed flock um, and, and how to do that without getting into line breeding um, to, you know, keep biosecurity clean and all that, all that good stuff. Um, but at the same time, not to, to bring in rams. Um, uh, I've heard people that have, you know, said they have a closed ewe flock. And I think that's, that's a way to avoid that is you keep your ewe flock closed, you bring in rams, you quarantine them, you buy from clean flocks, you test them when they come in, and then you'll likely be fine. I mean, the ram's only in there for a few weeks anyways. Um, you know, if you have a, a, a good biosecurity panel, you run on them or whatever, you can kind of make sure that you keep your, your flock clean, you know, check for foot rot, run them through a, a foot bath if you're really worried about it. Um, and and then you can just kind of kind of move on. Um, if you want to keep an entirely closed flock, I think you have to kind of have the numbers. I mean, what do you think, Robert? Yeah, you definitely need, uh, you need to be very, very versed in genetic and, and breeding to get your coefficients and not, uh, not get out of whack. There is a, uh, uh, there's a chart somewhere uh, that I found uh, from some of these conservancy programs where you know, a, a, a breed is uh, on the verge of being extinct that they, um, they use to build that up. Uh, I mean, if you, if you're down to 20 animals, it don't matter if they're inbred or not, you gotta, you get, you gotta save the breed. So uh, they, they have took that and they have a flow chart of, of how to cross, you know, to, uh, to get to that point to where you have, um, um, a, a not a strong inbred presence um but yeah that's tough you know uh and hey just when you think you've done the best uh one of your rams is going to get out and breed the whole flock anyway so <laughs> yep i think your speaker's messing up are you there Yes, I'm here. Okay. We, uh, we have a, a clock that goes off every hour, and uh, that was the, the hour mark, and so um, it was making noise, and so... Oh, you're was, muted. Yeah, I was, I was muted to keep you all from having to listen to... I don't even remember what song it was, but listen to a clock for a full minute. So anyways, no, that, that's a, you know, a great point. I think you, know, you just have to 
manage your genetics. Um, you know, I think, so she, she also asked if like electric netting fence is enough to keep rams from getting through. Um, generally, I think it is, um, especially in the summertime uh, when you're, when they're not, let me put it this way. You can keep a ram and electric fence as long as there's not use on the other side of the fence. And as long as you don't have aggressive rams on the other side of the fence that they're trying to fight. Um, you know, I think that can, both of those can be a problem. Um, you know, if you're going to try to introduce rams to each other, make sure you put them in a small pen for a while, um, make sure they get acclimated, you know, put them in a horse trailer or something somewhere where you can keep them in a, a tight area. Um, you know, I have, I know some people put them in a horse trailer, they get kind of hot, they get kind of thirsty, keep them in there for a while and you let them out and they all just want to drink water and get to somewhere cool and, um, kind of cool off a little bit. So I do um, that. I have a horse stall and, yeah. and I've got my automatic water, um, low i move it down so that they can utilize it and yeah. i put a hay feeder in there um and then I, uh, I i if i have enough if i don't have enough rams and i do this every time i like if i've got half my rams in my ram lot and mm -hmm. two rams are out in the field breeding when i bring those two rams home they all go back to the to the barn every time i swap rams uh, one dying is not worth it. So, so they all go to the horse stall. And if I don't have enough rams to make it kind of tight, uh, I'll throw in a couple plastic barrels, you know, where they can't walk around. They can walk around, uh, they can push on each other, but they can't rear back and butt each other. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. Uh, I feed them together. They drink together. They sleep together. And I don't even attempt to turn them out for at least a week. Uh, yeah. I make them spend a minimum of a week together, sometimes two. And after that, you'd thought they were best friends or, you know, boyfriends. <laughs> but uh, I usually don't have a problem. Well, I don't, I don't have a problem after that. Yeah, and that, that's the, I think, the, the key is to make sure that they can't have enough space to back up and charge or at least something in there. Um, you know, I've, I've put, made, you know, put my feeder in, in a way in the pen where they can't they don't have a space where they can get a full charge across the pen. Right. They have something to break it up. Um, so another key, somebody else pointed out a tip is they, uh, they take old tires, just the rubber of the tires yeah. and they throw them out in the pen and, uh, you know, they can walk across them, but they can't run. Yeah. <laughs> a little chip on them. Too. So it, uh, it, it works. Um, there's, there's lots of different ways you can, uh, you, you can, uh, you know, get around that for sure but i think you know electric fencing can definitely work i mean right now i have i just put in um kind of the way i i do my rams most of the time i keep them separate um i do keep some together uh, but i like to keep them separate if i can sometimes it just depends on personalities i have two rams that i know do not get along and they always fight when they're together so i just keep them in separate pens um but what i like to do in the summertime is i will put a one of my mature rams um in with my ram lambs after they're weaned and does a couple things one um having an adult in the pen makes them wean a lot easier um they there's a lot less stress they're they're much uh, happier having that the other thing too is <laughs> i noticed is i noticed my ram lambs fought less and i and i was a little curious as to why and and my my thinking is is when there is a, a very large ram in there they know they won't be tough 
So they're not fighting as hard to become the top ram in the pen, everybody trying to knock him off the, the top. Um, you know, they just kind of seem to not fight as much having that dominant ram in there that's much larger than them and, and kind of keeps keeps problems out of the way. Um, I even noticed one of the rams I put in there in the past, he would uh, he would kind of go up and break up the fights. Um, and, and so I think sometimes having a, a larger animal in there can help. So right now I've got a ram and 20-some ram lambs, um, 30 maybe some ram lambs in a in a pen um, just out on grass and electric So I do the same thing. This past week, uh, two or three people were showing fence line weaning and, and, oh, we put our ewes over here and the lambs right across the fence from each other for a week or two or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't do that. I, I do the same thing you do. I, I take uh, my ewe lambs, I'll put two ewes in there with them. And then my, my ram lambs go in my ram lot with all my rams. And mm-hmm. they don't ball for, I mean, 10 minutes and it's over. Because they have an adult in there with them and that they're used to. And they follow that person around. Yep. And, and I have zero, there is zero hollering and screaming that I experienced my first year with sheep when I didn't do that, you know. Yep. And another, i tell you something else I've done in the past and I, uh, I'll probably get back to doing it at some point is I used to weather a lot uh, mm-hmm. for myself personally to eat. Uh, yeah. I would weather, you know, three or four uh, rams and then I would put them in with my lambs one cycle. And then, then I could just turn them all back out in the field with my ewes. And I would always have a weather to process whenever I was ready to process when it got, you know, 130 or 40 pounds or 50 or however big I wanted to do. And then um, I didn't have to deal with it, and it made for a great babysitter, uh, you know, with no issues. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think the the weather thing is is something that I've always found interesting because when we started, um, we did weathers. Um, that was with the guy that we, so the guy we got our sheep from first, he he did uh, he would dock all the tails, and he would weather all the lambs, and uh, and so that was you know all we knew, and so that was what we did. And, uh, we decided not to dock the ram lamb tails. We just docked the ewe lamb tails to try. And we had one ewe lamb. And, and after that, we were like, no, we don't need to dock tails. <laughs> um, just leave them. But with the ram lambs, with the weathers, uh, I think we had, oh, we probably had six lambs that year. Cause you know, we only had a few lambs and most of them were ewe lambs. And, uh, <laughs> two of them ended up, they, they weren't fully weathers. Um, they were, <laughs> you missed one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah or two uh the the guy came over and and he was pretty laid back about it and so i, I flipped the lamb over and i i was you know castrating and he was like ah you got it i'm like i don't think so he's like now nah, you got it just just put that band on there i'm like okay whatever and then a couple months later i'm like that thing's growing a mane i don't think that's <laughs> uh weather at this point um but anyways you know it, for me i i've really i really prefer keeping them intact i don't see a flavor difference you get more lean meat you know they're going to gain muscle faster you're not going to put on as much fat um and then you can for me you know selling breeding stock you can evaluate which ones are the best and you don't have to at birth go oh you want a ram lamb okay i'll save you one um you know it's a day old it looks kind of neat it's mom's nice it's sire's nice sure i'll sell you this one um because 
<laughs> 50 to, well, let's put it this way. You should probably keep no more than the top 10 to 20% of your lambs um, as, as breeding rams. There's probably a good 10% that are born and you're like, nope, there's no way that thing will ever be a ram. The other 75%, they're possibilities. And those 75% are going to fall away as they grow. And so you have a 75% chance of getting a, a bad ram for somebody. And I don't want to do that. Well, um, now, I, but I don't weather mine until uh, they're probably 100 pounds. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. I use, I use a California bander. Okay. So um, it, it size is not a problem. And I band them when I'm weaning. And, um, and, and I know right then – he is not going to be a breeder. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I would ban three or four just so I could turn them back in with my ewes and mm -hmm. graze all summer and, yeah. and not have to worry about them or keep them separate, you know. Um, and, and I've had uh, my last one, I forgot that I had him in there. And when I went to my electronic ear tags, that's how I found him. I'm like, I scanned it and I scanned it. And I'm like, why is he not, or why is this you not popping up? <laughs> you know and uh, i'm like oh he's not a you it's a it so yeah. i had a i had a three or four year old weather was my last one that i processed <laughs> <laughs> probably gave you some nice sausage or something oh man it was sausage. awesome you know yeah. so that yeah. and that brings up a another that that's kind of part of uh taylor's other question um is is we mentioned keeping ram lambs intact whether it be to sell to ethnic markets or sell as rams for breeding stock, how long do you keep the rams at the the lambs at their mother's side before you are concerned with them being at breeding age? Once you wean your lambs, do you keep them up in a barn until you sell them, or do you run them in a separate paddock? So I think we covered uh, the part about intact or not. Yeah, yeah. I just pull mine in. I make sure that the 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 oldest, so I, you know, we at the average of 90 days. Yeah. Um, so I make sure the oldest one isn't over a hundred and I, you know, I'll have a couple that they're getting big and they're, you know, they're getting you know, hundred days. It's uh, like, I think I'm going to pull them out soon. So um, I uh, make sure I do that. Um, and then, yeah, I just run them in a separate pasture and, and, and I, I initially had that problem that, that you talked about Robert with the, the, uh, you know, keeping them separate from your youth all summer um, can be a hassle. Um, what I found is by not castrating any of them, I have such a volume that it's worth it running a separate pen. I can, because I'm going to keep a separate pen anyways for some of the ram lambs. So, oh, yeah. And that's what I do now. I, yeah. I just yep. turn them in with my ram lambs or yep. my, with my rams. And, um, and, and I like this year, um, previously, I, depending on the summer, I would have to keep. Uh, my soy hole pellets out for my rams year round because yeah. it's a small lot. So, um, yeah. but now I did the summer annual, so I got I got more than they can handle. Yeah, and, and it's not a high protein uh, cover crop anyway. It's more of a maintenance type deal. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, that's why I haven't weathered any in probably two years. Um, yeah, yeah, you got you got the ram lot already. Uh, the the work of fooling with it so I might as well put more in it yeah yeah one of the other questions that taylor asks here is about um how to to manage the rams when they're not out breeding use um we talked about that a little bit earlier about putting yeah. them in separate pens um 
But one of the, I think the flip side to that is how to manage the Rams when they are in with use. And I think, um, and the reason I, I bring this up is the idea of using multiple sire groups. Um, and, and so, you know, that's something we see out here a lot in the West, um, you know, with range flocks, they'll just, you know, run a bunch of Rams in with their use because they don't care who the sire is. Um, but for, for small producers, you know, there are benefits for sure in, in running multiple sires in a group as far as um, conception rates, uh, especially for fall lambing. Um, I know the USDA has seen dramatic increases in fall lambing percentage running multiple sires. Um, and so, you know, there are some benefits there. Parentage testing is an option, but you kind of just got to weigh what works best for your operation. But, uh, you know, I was originally um, worried about running multiple sires in a group because I was concerned that they would, uh, you know, kill each other or something, <laughs> um, you know, put them in with, with, uh, with use. And I think it's just a matter of making sure you don't have a, a two big dominant Rams in the same pen. Um, and knowing their personality. Are you using a mark and harness to determine which one breeds which you? Well, so I'm not doing multiple sire groups, okay. um, but I know people that are. Um, yeah, I do too. I know people doing the DNA sampling and they yeah. love it. I mean, they're, yeah. put, they're turning out three or four rams. Yeah. And um, yeah. they find out that two are real dominant. One just could care less. Yeah. You know, and one's just average, you know, as far yeah. as breedability yeah so they, they really feel like they're getting even though it costs them i don't know 17 18 20 dollars per dna uh they're getting parentage verification plus their biosecurity testing done at the same sample mm -hmm. so um they feel like they're getting their money's worth and and getting more lambs to justify it so yeah yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely some some pros. Um, there's obviously some cons when it comes to pricing, but that's about the only con that I can think of with doing it that way. Well, time and labor and and sampling all the lambs um, is certainly a, a disadvantage as well. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's something else people can consider. Um, just thought we could talk about that a little bit while we're on the topic of managing rams. Um, back up to to some of Jensen's questions. Jensen asks about. Um, what to do with sheep that keep the wool on their back in the summertime. Um, I, I'm guessing they're, they're, those are probably some, some upgrades from some dorpers or um, upgrades from some wool sheep. Um, I don't know, unless, unless it's an issue, I'd say probably just leave it. I don't know. What, what do you think, Robert? Yeah, well, it, uh, I've had a couple crosses that, that I've experimented with and, and yet yeah, drives me nuts seeing it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, that's one of the things when I first looked at sheep, Dorper was, I had never heard of a Katahdin. And, um, and that was one of the things that turned me off about the Dorpers. Uh, it, it absolutely drove me nuts. I'd go visit a farm and see all these shaggy dogs running around and I didn't want wool sheep. So I kept thinking, can they handle it? Well, of course they can handle it. You know, they're, they're, bred in africa so um it's it's not a it's not a nuisance to the sheep so it's yeah. totally totally up to the to the shepherd if if uh, you want to shear it off you can or just let it go and cull for it if you don't like it uh, or yeah. you know there's probably times a year you can sell that one and 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 replace her you know with something you've raised so 
Yeah. In, in my, in my situation for this shepherd, anyways, it's more of a nuisance to the shepherd than it is to the sheep. So <laughs> oh yeah, the sheep don't care. You don't know. Yeah. You probably don't yeah. even know it's back there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I can tell you something else. Uh, um, if you have like in my, I just brought in two Rams from Iowa uh, mm-hmm. over the winter. So it was probably a culture shock for them uh, yeah. here in July. Um, and there, there, there's two, well, probably five or six trees in my ram lot and they're Bradford Parish. So they're very known to break and, you know, they're probably 15 years old now. So two or three of them have died and I've still got three or four left and, and a limb broke off and, and these two sheep from Iowa still have just a little cover on them, you know, and, and I, I've seen that it usually takes a year or two when I've brought animals from different parts of the country to adjust, you know, uh-huh. um, Anyway, so the, they are wearing those trees out, rubbing. You know, <laughs> so more than likely, if you just have something out there for them to rub on, yeah. You know, if it's a if it's more of a Katahdin base uh, that just hasn't shed yet, it'll probably just it, they'll probably rub it off. Yeah, yeah. You could build. You could even build a little a little, little frame scraper to, or something. You know. Yeah, something where they can rub the top because that that uh, is not very easy for them to rub on. I have seen some that are almost horizontal as they're rubbing. They're just like oh, yeah. almost, it's like, wow, if uh, you look like you're going to fall over there, little lammy. I did a cross fencing project a couple years ago and all wove wire fence, and now it's all <laughs> white wove wire fence. <laughs> yeah. They love well, it. Yeah. Well, it's got a nice lanolin layer, so hopefully it keeps the water off it and you don't have to worry about rest. Yeah. Um, be, the, the, the flip side of that is, you have hair on there that maybe it's holding the water and making it rest, but we'll just move on to another question. Um, so, uh, another question here about guard dogs and livestock guardians, um, and training livestock guardians. Um, so we're, we're chatting about this before the, the podcast. And, uh, so Robert, your guard dog barking. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a cockapoo. So she's not uh, much of a guard dog at all, but, uh, <laughs> she, it's funny. She, uh, you know, she's fluffy, kind of like one. And I'm like, well, if you take her outside and you put the sheep in the background and get her really close and take a picture, um, it might just look like she's a big guardian dog. But uh, Well, I no. would say there's a lot of uh, livestock guardian dogs that were bought and raised as guardian dogs. They're probably no more effective than your cockapoo is. <laughs> um, yeah. And actually, uh, there's a lady kind of close to me. We need to get her on and do a dog only podcast she's yeah. been raising guardian dogs forever and sells a lot out west uh you know into the mountain line and the wolf world you know and uh she's give a lot of speeches here in tennessee at some of our events and um it, that's a different world you know uh my advice i've had guard dogs ever since i've had sheep uh mm-hmm. i've had a lot of useless dogs i've had a handful of good dogs a good dog is priceless. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back, I wish I'd have never bought a dog um, as a puppy. Um, you know, I wish I, I would have spent money. Don't matter. I wish I'd have bought uh, a trained uh, dog that uh, somebody had had for years. And, you know, I would have just coughed up the money and been done with it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also know, uh, people that are not running dogs 
who have run dogs in the past and are buying into this, you know, if you've got a dominant coyote, he's not bothering your flock. And uh, I won't mention a name, but I was at a guy's house one day, uh, probably two years ago, and I know he used to have guard dogs. And he's mm-hmm. running probably 200, 250 ewes in, in Missouri. And, and we're standing there in his front yard. I, I took two people there to visit to show him his place. And there goes a coyote right around the edge of his cornfield. And I'm like, man, where's your dog? He goes, man, I ain't had dogs in two or three years. You know, he said, I've kind of been reading about, you know, this dominant, you leave that coyote alone, then you don't get rogue coyotes coming in trying to claim that territory. And, um, and it's, and that's probably been two or three years ago and he still does not have any guard dogs. So, um, I'm kind of in the same boat. My dogs, uh, they guard my front porch. I can't <laughs> keep them in the field. I think that's the biggest thing. If you can keep those dogs in your field, uh, they, they do okay. You know, they bark and they growl and, and they have to bond with the sheep. Yeah, and they, they bond with the sheep pretty good if, if nobody's, you know, like in my case. But one day I had a Pyrenees. Uh, my mailman called me and said, or didn't call me. I ran into him at the store, and he goes, man, I seen your dog over at so-and-so's house. And I'm like, that's seven miles away. There's no way. Oh, yeah, it's, I see your dogs every day when I pass your driveway. And I'm like, well, there's no way that that dog is seven miles away. Sure enough, about a week later, he sent me a picture. And that's my dog, seven miles from my house. But yeah. my dog is always home when I left and always home when I got back. But during the middle of the day, when I wasn't there, he was seven miles down the road. And he had to cross a river to get there, you know, and go through the woods, you know. So, yeah. Over the river and through the woods. And so, so I'm in the process. I'm, I'm going to try one more thing. I've got some friends that have done the underground uh, – buried dog fence in the collar deal and uh, so i've got the wire um fixing to probably the next probably two months finish another project where i can get on it and bury um you know right it, i got enough to do 100 acres so i'm going to bury around my entire uh, exterior fence and put collars on my dogs and hope they stay if they don't yeah. i'm giving up yeah well and i think the other thing to keep in mind with guard dogs is they don't necessarily work for everybody depending on where you're at like for me you know i'm pretty close to basically town um and so you know and i lease most of my fields so you know if i take them to a a field that i lease somewhere else um you know i can't be certain they're not going to attack the landowner i mean there's so much of a or somebody landowner invites on their property or whatever or their their pet or whatever and so um you know my my standard has kind of been to just make sure i have good fencing um you know, you can get those little fox lights. I don't know if they work. Maybe they do. Well, um, you know, I've got I, some of those, the little flashing red lights. Yeah, red. Solar-powered night light, not, not eyes or whatever. I've had those for probably seven years, and they still work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have one. It, it's uh, battery-powered, and it just randomly does red, white, and blue flashes. It looks like the, the police are out there in your yard um, all night long, but, but uh, supposedly it keeps the, the foxes away. So, um Another uh, uh, tip as well for predators besides, you know, fencing and and all that sort of thing is just, um, you know, there are other guardian animals you can use. You can do, um, you can do llama or, you know, you can do llamas, you can do donkeys. Um, There's, there's lots of options out there. Just 
research kind of what you need, um, what's going to work best for, for your system and then, you know, adapt accordingly. And I well, think- and I can, I, I've had all of those, uh, at one time I had all of them in the field together. I had a donkey or I had four donkeys actually in different lots and I had two llamas and a dog and something killed the donkey, a llama and my dog. So, you know, I don't know, um, sometimes if your predator is bad enough, it don't matter what you got, um, or if there's enough yeah. of them. So, um, it's kind yeah. of, kind of the thing to, to think about with, with livestock guardian dogs or, or llamas or, uh, they're, you know, there's no solution that works for everybody. And yeah. And out here, my, I mean, yeah, my guess is domestic dogs are probably, they probably kill more, uh, more lambs yeah. than, than coyotes or wolves and everybody else combined. So, well, wolves kill a, a fair amount out here. Um, oh, I'm sure, you know, we've, yeah. we've, we've had people that have had, you know, pileups of, uh, we have one producer out here that lost 160 in a night. Uh, wolves wow. chased them off a cliff and killed them all. So, or not all of them. That was, you know, a portion of the couple bands that were out there, but it's a, you know, pretty, pretty big kills, but I think, you know, just make sure you, you know, what works for your system. Um, and there's, you know, lots of strategies, uh, prevention and all that, but I think, um, good know, just, fencing, good fencing goes a long ways. Uh, yep. back to your electric fence. My dogs don't pay electric fence any attention. Uh, yeah. they climb a gate, they jump a gate, you know? Uh, so I'm hoping the electric collar works for me. Uh, yep. and then, then buy, buy good stock, you know, um, yep. yep. Well, it's what, what I would suggest. Yeah. Well, we, we got through a few of the questions. Um, we still have definitely more to cover. We'll do another question yep. and answer here soon. Um, but, uh, if you have questions out there and you're listening to this or watching us on YouTube, send us an email. Again, that's podcast at sheepthings.com. And, uh, we'll be happy to, to answer your questions here. Stay tuned if you've asked questions to hear your questions be answered uh, coming up. I can't soon. believe people ask us questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're still fairly new at this thing, we, but we've uh, we've got experts. We're probably at three hundred plus. Well, people don't know who our next surprise guest is, but yeah, after adding him, we're probably at three hundred years of sheep experience, and yeah. people are asking us questions. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh. Hopefully we can, we can take some of our conversations and, and be just in, in essence, a, a, I don't know the right, right analogy to use, but kind of rubber and, uh, people are the go between guy. Yeah. Pe- people throw information at us when we ask them questions and then, uh, and then we can bounce that information back to people that ask us. So, um, but we're happy to do that. Um, or even ha- happy to ask some of our guests, um, you know, either on the podcast or off the podcast, we, we may be, you know, asking them, Hey, so we got this question and then, and then, you know, answering that here on the question and answer, if it's one that we don't know. And, you know, we're happy to also point you in the directions of resources like we did earlier with the, um, American consortium for small ruminant parasite control. Um, because you know, I'm not a parasitologist. Um, I, I can't answer all those questions, but I can tell you who can. So, um, you know, definitely send us your questions podcast at sheepthings.com and uh, stay tuned for our next guest, which you are going to love um, hearing his experience um, and his knowledge, his expertise. 
um, and, and make sure you tune in, tell a friend. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please uh, uh, subscribe to our channel there. If you're enjoying this content, give us a review if you'd like. Um, preferably five-star reviews are, are always preferred, but uh, if you have other ones, you can just keep those to yourself. And uh, no, just kidding. Um, tell us what you think. Um, if there's anything you want us, you know, he's saying, oh, this is, you know, some, a topic or a speaker you'd really like you guys to cover. Again, it's the same email address, podcast at cheapthings.com, and we will be happy to get back to you or have on people that, that you're curious about. So with that, uh, we'll let you guys go and listen to other podcasts that we've put out there, and uh, we'll uh, see you, or you guys will see us or, or hear us all later. So, so what, is the, what is the one guy used to say? We'll see you on the radio. <laughs> yep, we will see you on the radio. So, anyways, I don't, I don't, I don't know who that is. I don't think I've heard that before, but the, it, it sounds like a fun saying. So, anyways, we'll uh, we'll talk to you all later. Thanks for tuning yeah. in. Well, everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast so far, and and hopefully it's sparking some questions in your mind as you're thinking about your operations and thinking about what you can do to improve. Maybe you're new and, and thinking about questions of, of how you can continue raising your sheep and, and things that you're learning and things you still have questions about. Send us an email, uh, podcast at sheepthings.com. We'll get those emails and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to answer your questions. And uh, after we get a few questions, periodically we'll actually do a podcast uh, with question and answer. And we'll answer your questions right on the podcast here so you can listen to our answers and and we're happy to answer any questions that we can. And hopefully this podcast is, is generating those questions in your mind as you start thinking about it. But hopefully it's answering questions too. You come to this podcast ready to learn. And, and uh, I know I'm always learning something new talking with these people. People that I've, I've known before, people that I haven't. And you always learn something new. And so hopefully we can help answer your questions. But we can't answer your questions unless you send them to us. So again, that's podcast at cheapthings.com podcast at sheepthings.com email us your questions and we'll be happy to answer them uh, coming up here soon thanks for listening to the sheep things podcast stay connected to our website facebook page or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates we want your feedback so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments thank you and see you later